Lord, we love you. I thank you, God, for all you've done in our hearts, all you continue to do. I thank you for the grace you've shown to us. Lord, we want to come into revelation of who it is you are. God, we have spent much of our life assuming, making assumptions about you without knowing the truth of you. So I'm asking, Abba, you would, even this morning again, pull back the veils. Pull back the veils that cover our eyes. Remove the scales that blind us. We could see you as you are. See you for who you are. We're so grateful to you. We love you, Lord. We love you. Oh, we cherish you. We cherish your son. We adore you, Abba. Come, I ask, Holy Spirit, rest. Rest on us this morning. I pray the spirit of revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. Let it be released here, God. Let our hearts come alive in love. Wonderful. In the name of Jesus, everyone said amen. Amen. Good. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to Matthew chapter 22. I think I'm going to take a few weeks just talking about the story of the gospel, the story of the romance of the gospel. I uh, spoke to our interns who just graduated. We just graduated our class of interns on, on this past week, and I spoke to them a couple weeks ago, just, just giving them a, a refresher on the message of intimacy. As I did, my heart just moved again over this topic, and uh, I just feel like I want to, I just want to talk to us again about it. Matthew 22 is, uh, it's one of those verses that will never escape. We don't graduate from Matthew 22 too, and here's what it says. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Many people, we have a, a perspective of what we think this story, the story of God and man is about. And I think uh, all the different parables that Jesus gives, they illustrate a facet of the story. And Jesus, here in Matthew 22, he's... He's there at the end of his life. It's, it's right down to the last week of his life. And you know how that is. If you're getting ready to go on a trip, you're, you know, you've got the, maybe you've got the house sitter there and you've got your list of things and one, two, three, four, five, but you're getting ready to go out the door and you've got your list and you say, hey, there's one more thing I need to make sure you get and you emphasize it right there because you're getting ready to go and you want to emphasize the most important thing so that's fresh in their mind, so it doesn't get forgotten, and then you leave. Well, that's what Jesus does. Those, that last week, he lands the most important points regarding the kingdom. And it's his first detailed explanation of himself as a bridegroom. I love it. He says, let me explain it to you one more time, once again, from a different angle. He goes, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A king is arranging a marriage for his son. Beloved, I want to say this to you boldly, 
and, and for my heart and yours, the story that the Bible tells from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that story is about that sentence. God is arranging a marriage for his son. We have made it about a bunch of different things, but I promise you that phrase, that sentence encapsulates what the whole of the scripture is about and it gives us the undergirdings of the theology for the entire kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is about a certain king. He's a good king. And that king has a son. And his son is just like his father. And that good king is meticulously looking through the subjects under all of creation And he's inviting each of them to a marriage, to the marriage of his son. And he's looking to raise a bride from all those in creation that would be comparable to his son. And what we get in the story from Genesis 1, where we see God creating the earth... And he doesn't create the earth because he needs a new toy. And he doesn't create the cosmos because he wants something to play with or planets to name. He creates the entirety of creation. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is about a king who's arranging a marriage for his son. And he needs somewhere to put the bride. So he creates the entirety of the cosmos so he can make earth. And he makes earth... And he makes all the different features of earth so he can make man. And then he gives man rulership and dominion. And then what does he do? He makes a man and he gives him a helper comparable to him. One just like him, taken from him. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is about a king who's arranging a marriage for his son. And so in the initial acts of creation, what does God do right there in the beginning of the Bible? He gives us the picture of a man and a woman who are joined in love, they're joined in intimacy, they're joined without shame, they're joined in passion, they're joined in perfection. And God gives us that, why? To point to the truth of what the kingdom of heaven is about. And I love to think about those days. I love to think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Think about it. There's no curse. There's no sin. I mean, it's beautiful. The place is alive because the Spirit of God is hovering everywhere. You know, we've seen lush vegetation, we've seen tropical places, you've seen, you know, maybe you've traveled and, or maybe you've seen on, on television or magazines, you know, the, the, the lush areas with incredible, you know, fruitful, you know, vegetation and gardens. And, but but that's, that, everything you and I have ever seen actually has been cursed. What was it like, what was the fragrance, what was the aroma of the garden blooming with flowers that didn't have a curse on them? What was the fruit in the garden 
before it was cursed. I mean, maybe you've seen some of these videos, the transformation videos, and they show the places that have had a powerful move of the Spirit of God to where even the land has been healed, and they'll show, you know, they've got carrots like as big as my arm, you know, and cucumbers and amazing vegetation, and, and the, the ground is healed, and so the guy will come walking out, and he's got a cucumber like this, you know, and it's that far, you know, thick around, and it's this, you're like, what is that? And I tell you what that is, that's a little glimpse of what it's like when the kingdom of God is on earth and the curse is put back and God's uh, life is flowing through the vegetation. And so in the garden, that's what it was like. You and I like the the fragrance of flowers, but those are all cursed flowers because God pronounced a curse on the ground. What was the vegetation? What were the flowers like before there was a curse? What was the fruit like before there was a curse? What was the the grass like? I mean, what were the trees like? What were the days like? Adam and Eve, no shame. They're walking around. They don't have any clothes on, and they don't know it. Come on. Totally no sensation of shame and sin, and the place is alive. Beauty. The presence of the Lord is swirling about them. The fragrance of the flowers is like nothing you and I have ever, ever smelled. I mean, the fruit. I mean, the grapes. You know, one grape. I mean, what was the flavor? What was the fragrance? What was the grass like? You know, you ever, you know when your feet... Maybe you've had them in shoes a long time, and you, you, maybe it's that first sort of warmth of spring, like where we're at right now, and you, you, you ever take your shoes off and go just walking around in the grass? It just feels so good. What was that grass like that they had that didn't have a curse on it? I mean, talk about velvet, alive with God, sort of moving back and forth underneath the, the feet, sort of giving a, a massage. I mean, it was alive. This, well, I mean, what, what was that reality? There they are. Imagine it. There's one guy and one girl. You know, you don't have to get the sitter to be alone <laughs> to take care of the kids. That's just them. The fragrance of the flowers, the fruit, the beauty, the peace. Sin has not entered the earth. And the sun sets. My wife and I, we went to, uh, for our 10th anniversary, we went to Hawaii. We kind of saved up for a few years and got ourselves, and we went to Hawaii. And I remember our, our first evening there. I'm driving along the road, and uh, I'm, here I am driving, and the sun is setting. We're trying to go over to the, uh, to the, like, the tourist center to get, like, the tickets to go to the different attractions we want to go to. We want to do this hike, and we want to go on this trip and scuba. And we're driving along the road, and the sun sets, and it, it really, it looked like this. It looked like once the sun hit the ocean, it exploded across the sky. I, I'm driving, and I look, and I go, whoa! I pull my car over, jump out of the car, take out my camera. I'm taking pictures. I'm thinking, you know, it took me about 15 minutes to think, gosh, you know, nobody else pulled over and stopped and looked at that sunset. It's probably pretty easy to figure out who the tourist is. It's, that's their normal sunset. But I, I, it was just, I don't know, it was amazing. It was like magical. It was um, amazing. And I thought, our best sunset in our most tropical paradise is poor. 
It's wilted <laughs> compared to what the sunsets had to have been like for Adam and Eve. So there they are. No kids. No problems. No sin. No shame. Fragrance and flowers and fruit and grass massaging the feet. Sitting and the sun crests the horizon and explodes in a panoramic kaleidoscope of beauty and color and glory and sound. There's verses that give us implications that there's more than just human sounds going on. There's that the, that the, uh, the vegetation and the plants were perhaps emitting sound and being alive and and the, the angels singing, perhaps Adam and Eve could potentially even hear them singing. In that place of perfection. Why does God start creation there? The kingdom of heaven is about a king. He's arranging a marriage for his son. And what he's trying to do, the story of Genesis 1 and 2, is he's trying to give us a picture of the purposes of his heart. And every marriage from that moment till now forever is a signpost. Ephesians 5, it tells us this. It's a signpost speaking of the truth of this. God has a son who's going to marry a bride. And that's what the whole kingdom of heaven is like. This story that you and I are a part of is about this. God is arranging a marriage. His son desires a bride. And you and I, who said yes to it, we get to be partakers of divine love and beauty of supernatural proportions like our mind and thought has never conceived. It's the story of the gospel. This is the story of the romance. Beloved, this is our future. This is our life and our destiny. And we will experience forever in a place far superior. In intimacy, in passion, in beauty than Adam and Eve ever had. That's what Genesis 1 to, Gen uh, to Revelation 22 tells us. That's what the whole story is about. I remember, uh, you know, I want to tell a little bit of my testimony. Because for a long time... I was uh, in ministry, and I was fiery for God. I mean, fiery for God. I, I, I wasn't trying to have a, a uh, reputation. I just remember this. Before I got saved, I was really overt about sin. I just have always kind of had this wiring in me. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it serious. I'm going to do it, you know, as hard as I can. And when I was unsaved, I did it as hard as I could. And when I got saved, it only made sense to me that salvation wasn't just something you just sort of did, just sort of like added on. It was, no, I was so hard in my sin this direction, it just made total sense. You just go as hard as you were going that way, you go that hard the other direction. And I remember, I mean, getting saved as a, a college student and really just, just going uh, hard after the Lord in the best way that I knew how. And I remember the campus ministers and the ministry I was a part of, they would come to my dorm room every single day. And they'd say, hey, you want to come and preach with us on the campus? And I said, sure. I mean, I've been saved, a, you know, 
three months. And I'm out on the college campuses talking to people about Jesus. And we did that three, four, five times a week. I mean, we would, we would go out and I would be leading people to the Lord. I was a brand new believer. It's all I knew. And I, that, was, that was the package of my Christianity. And as I grew up as a believer and I got into the ministry, I always just said, let's just, you know, put it in fifth gear and let's go after God. And, uh, and I loved the Lord. There, there, it wasn't an issue uh, for me of whether or not I loved God. I loved God. I knew I wasn't going to hell because he was good. He saved me and set me free from, from drugs and a lifestyle of sin that was de- destroying me. And I loved God. The thing I didn't know was how much he loved me. I mean, I knew he had to love me. You know what I mean? For God so loved the world, da 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 he has to. So I kind of had this thing like, God tolerates me, but if I go really, really hard after God, he'll have to tolerate me right into the kingdom. Come on now. And, and I lived a long time not understanding his heart towards me. And I led a lot of people in a fifth gear sort of Christianity, loving God real hard, but almost with no recognition of God's love towards them. And I remember the end of 2002, the Lord called me to a long fast, and I went out to a conference in Kansas City. And I really, I didn't go because I thought there was anything cool in Kansas City. I went for two reasons. There was a bunch of worship leaders that I thought were really cool, and they were doing an all-day hardcore fasting and prayer event. So I thought, this is a good way to go for it. And the other guy that was in ministry with me, he said, he walked in my office with this ad and he said, hey, I want to go to this. It looks a little sketchy. Will you go with me just in case it's weird? And I said, sure. So we go to this conference and the worship leaders are playing and it's good. And I just, the Lord had just introduced me into uh, what we call contemplative prayer, but soaking prayer, just sitting and experiencing the presence of the Lord. And I just got introduced to it. And I'd been practicing that for a a few months at that time, just sort of, rather than striving in my prayer to get God to hear me and do something for me, just sitting back and enjoying the presence of, I I was a totally new concept. I thought, oh, this is amazing. You can actually sit here and God's there. Wow. And I did that for months. I did it for a couple months. And then we go to this conference. And the whole conference, all they talk, every session, they talk about God's delight in people and his emotions, and that his heart is moved and that he's pleased with people. Because I had thought God was mostly disgusted with people. And my goal as a minister was to get people to hear about God's disgust with them so they'd repent and quit being disgusting. <laughs> that, that's kind of my mentality. Come on, you've been to that church. There's a lot of us that are like that. We think God's mostly disgusted, and you know what I'm saying, and the preaching has got to get us to quit being disgusting to God. And he started saying, the ministry, all the different ministers were saying, you know, God loves his people. Even in, his, even in their weakness, he delights in them. And it started, it started impacting me. And I remember getting hit with arrow after arrow, and it was like little explosions going off every session. And what was crazy to me, and on this side, I realized they didn't even mention, they didn't even crack the book of Song of Solomon, the whole conference, until the very last day. And Song of Solomon has become a major 
majorly important book in my life. But they didn't even crack it to the last day. They, they just used scripture after scripture after scripture from Genesis to Revelation explaining the storyline of the romance of the gospel. God's love and desire for people even in their weakness. And I remember that last day of that conference, I was so, I remember just being so tenderized because of the revelation of God's love. When they said, let's look at Song of Solomon, I was like, yeah, I wanna, I wanna see what this book says. Now for me, that was a major departure because I was a hell, fire, and brimstone preacher. I, was, I had been really impacted through the Brownsville revival. They had one message that they preached a bunch of different ways every single night, and it was, you're going to hell, you better get down here and repent. And I was massively impacted by that. And so for me to want to turn over to the book of Song of Solomon and go, he thinks I'm lovely. <laughs> it was a major departure from where I'd been. And I remember they began to preach out of that book, and I got a 20-CD series that goes verse by verse through the Song of Solomon, and I listened to it twice. And I remember going back to, to, my, uh, to my youth ministry, and I, I am so, I am literally, I've, I literally, for three months, I walked around inebriated on the presence of God's love for me. I was so alive with love. I remember just being like lit up and smiling. And I remember I come out and I'm going to preach a message and I'm going to talk about uh, being lovers. Ones that God loves and lovers of God. And I crack open the book of Song of Solomon and I start talking about, he says his, you know, he is ravished over us. And I remember preaching this to our, to our young people. I remember them turning around and looking at me, like catching me after service, like, what happened to you and what are you talking about? What do you mean Song of Solomon and, and, and God, you know, and it, he, he's ravished and all this. And it was such a massive departure. And I ended up processing it through, and I remember two years later after that experience, I was talking to a friend and leader uh, and friend of mine, and, and he said, you know, he said, uh, and he's a minister, and he said, you know, I talk to people, and I counsel them to change how they act. But to get them to change their personality, he goes, that's, you can't change a person's personality. Because you can change, you can tell them to change what they do, but to get them to change their personality, he goes, only God can do that. He goes, I watched you for the last two years. He goes, God has changed your personality. How did it happen? My simple answer, I just said, I, this, this is going to sound so dumb. I go, I found out he likes me. God likes me. And all the striving, all the hardcore, I love you, Jesus, I'll prove it to you, Jesus. All the internal, you know, exercises to try to get God's approval, all of them. They just settled down. And I realized I could be still, and whether I did all these amazing things or I did nothing, I'd already won. Because he likes me. Beloved, this is our story. <laughs> this is our story. It was like I got born again, again. And I want to tell you, I don't know where you are on that journey. The journey into love. 
the journey into the romance. I don't know where you are. It doesn't matter where you are. You could have been meditating in these thoughts for 15 years, or you might be three months into them. I want to hand you something this morning. It's called the reset button. The reset button is Matthew 22, 2. Because <laughs> here's what will happen. You'll, you'll get the truths established in your heart. You'll get these realities established in your heart. You'll find out God likes you. You'll find out he loves you. You'll find out it's all about this romance between God and man. And all of the kingdom of heaven is about this. The father is arranging a wedding. He's pulling from the earth a bride to marry his son. You'll get it landed. And you know what happens? You get doing life. And you get cold in that. And you forget about it. And you sort of have it there. But beloved, we need to live with it right here in front. And Matthew 22, 2, it's the reset. And I realize this, that no matter how mature you are in Christ, you've got to press that reset button regularly. No matter how many times you've heard the messages, you've studied the intimacy passages, no matter how many times you've read the verses about the emotions of God, you've got to press the reset button regularly because we're human beings. We will go through life doing, 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 doing all this stuff and growing cold, waning in our passion and growing cold in our understanding of God's love for us. You know, it was revolutionary for me when I realized this. Passion is not about what I can muster up and put on display for God. Passion comes as a result of realizing the burning passion in his heart for me. And when that hits my heart, whoa, you can't stop me. I remember the simple truth I learned A lover will work 10 times harder than a worker every time. I remember hearing, you know, we could employ workers for a certain amount of money every hour, and we would get the workers to work at a certain level. But if those workers fell in love, it wouldn't matter if they got paid or not. They would give themselves an abandonment regardless of the wage because a lover goes harder than a worker every time single time. So, beloved, I want to take a few weeks. I want to press the reset button for us. just want to press the reset. I want to take us into the story of the gospel, the story of the romance. I was going to try to give it all in one week, and, and I realized, you know what? I want to go slow for a minute. I want to marinate for a minute. I want to get us out of our running and gunning, and, and I just want to take a moment and think about the way God feels about us. I, I just want to take us, I want to press Matthew 22 too. It is. This whole thing is about God arranging a marriage for his son, and I'm the one he desires. You know, somebody asked me, he said, well, how do you get, you know, you're a guy, how do you get over the whole Song of Solomon girl thing? You know, like, like you're the girl, and, you know, dressed in white, and, you know, flowers, and roses, and, you know, cakes, and, ra- like, how do you get past that? Well, there's a verse in Proverbs, and it says this. Jealousy is a husband's fury. Jealousy is a husband's fury. I remember several years ago, I, uh, my wife and I, we were, we were, when we were living in Kansas City, we weren't living in the most savory area. And um, there were some, some rough little guys that lived around our house, kind of little wannabe, kind of thug life little guys. And uh, 
we drive up, we pull into our house, and we roll our window down, and we're going to say hi to him. Hey, guys. And the little guy makes a perverse statement to my wife. A little, little nine-year-old guy and says something really perverse to my wife. I had a sensation. <laughs> explode in my body that I've only had a few times. And I felt the heat. Actually, I felt it go up my face like a thermometer. <laughs> I parked the car. Th- I, I pulled in the driveway, pull, threw the car in the park, pulled in the garage. Get out, and I am walking with a man, like a man with a purpose, to find that little nine-year-old and demand him to tell my wife sorry. And I walk out in the street, and there's a bunch of little kids out there, and I go, where is he, you know? And the, uh, his sister, his big sister goes, well, you know, she starts kind of wagging her head and talking to me, like, who do you think you are? I go, I want to talk to your dad right now. Go get him. And, uh, and I'm looking around, and I'm talking to these kids, and I look across at their house, and we didn't know them because they lived across from us. We knew kind of everybody right next to us. We didn't know them. And uh, this guy comes out, and he's mad. He's way bigger than me. And, and if I was walking with, like a man with a purpose, he was walking like a man with a purpose too. And me and him walk at each other, and we meet right up in the middle of that cul-de-sac. And I, I walk over to him, and I go, all right. Here's the deal. Your son said this to my wife, and he needs to apologize. And I'm standing there, and you know, it didn't dawn on me till after that I was in harm's way. That guy looked right at me, and he goes, you're exactly right. Let me go get him. And, and the apology came forth. But it was later that I thought, what was I doing? I'm five foot nothing, you know, a hundred and nothing. I mean, I'm nothing. Like, I'm, but I'm going to go get myself killed if I act like that. And I realized that verse, jealousy is a husband's fury. And all of a sudden, I realized the story of Song of Solomon is not some kind of weak sort of, you know, if you're a guy and you need to read it, you're sort of, you know, overly effeminate. All of a sudden, I realized this is the story of a burning passionate, fiery bridegroom who loves his bride and will stop at nothing to see that she is his. Jealousy is a husband's fury. And so that got me right over the hurdle of the Song of Solomon. I was like, yes, I get it. He is burning for me, and he will even throw himself in harm's way. Even a cross. Because of love. And all of a sudden, Song of Solomon, cakes of raisins and flowers and flowery language and poetry. I mean, all of a sudden, it made sense. And I remember those days of coming into the revelation of God's passionate, burning love for me and, and his delight for me. He likes me. Everything changed. No longer was I spending all my time trying to work for God to sort of prove to him that I loved him. All of a sudden, everything shifts, and I'm the target, not him. Beloved, do you realize you're the target? You're the target of love. You're the object of affection. 
He's not trying to get you to perform to see if you're worthy for him to give love to. He is, he is shooting arrows of love at you every single day, trying to woo your affections that you would run after him. That's the story of the gospel. This is the story of our life. I tell you, oh, when the lost hear the story of the gospel, when they hear that God is a man in love, that their maker is their husband and he is burning in passion for them, oh, when the lost hear this, all those lies about who God is and what he's trying to do, they will fail in an instant and they will see the burning heart of the God who's desired them from eternity past and is working all the activities of this life. Why? For love. It'll change everything. I tell you, I want to be a preacher of love. I want to be a preacher of the love of God to such an extent that when I say Jesus loves you, it comes out of the cliche and it turns into thunder resonating in the chest of the lost. So that that phrase becomes reality. Oh, that we could understand. We've been commissioned as a people to love a world that's lost, but you know what the challenge is, beloved? You know what the challenge is for us? We're trying to tell them that Jesus loves them. We're trying to show them the love of God. But you know what the problem is? We don't know it. How do we tell a people that Jesus loves them when we have not understood the love of Jesus for ourselves? Therein is a massive issue, a massive problem. This whole story, it's about God's desire for us. I want to give you two truths that changed me forever. And I know these are simple. I'm pressing reset for us. I'm pressing reset for us. And you know that you need the reset button pressed when these thoughts don't move your heart. <laughs> That's how you know. When, you, when your passion wanes and you get cold to this truth, God became a man because he loves people. When that truth is dull, better press reset. <laughs> I promise. Press reset. Go back to Matthew 22 and read it. <laughs> the whole thing is about a marriage. And God has made you the target. <laughs> because he loves. Because he desires. Two truths that change me forever. I'm just going to give you two, th two things that change me forever and two keys. Now, they're not all the keys, but two things that will help you keep your heart alive. Number one truth that changed me forever, that I, when I press reset, I come back to this truth. So simple. God loves me even in my weakness and frailty. God loves me even in my weakness and frailty. Beloved, I never understood that. I'd been in the ministry 13 years. I'd been saved like 17 years or something. 16 years. And I did not understand 101, love of God. He loves even the weak. In fact, that's all that he loves because that's all there is. Weak and broken. We sort of think this, that God loves the perfect people, the pretty people, you know, the professional people, but God doesn't love the broken and groveling and down in the dirt people. We are so far off. There are no perfect, pretty professionals. It's all groveling down in the dirt people. That's what we are. 
He loves even the weak. I, when, that was, I mean, I'd been in the ministry 13 years. That truth was so hard to swallow. And the reference is Song of Solomon. It's that, that, that great verse, one, Song, of Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 5. I am dark but lovely. I love that bride. I love the maiden in Song of Solomon because she doesn't play the game that you and I play. You and I, the guy goes, hey, how you doing? We go, blessed. Praise the Lord. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. How are you, brother? In Song of Solomon, the maiden, they go, how are you doing? She goes, I am dark. I am dingy. I've got issues. I am weak. I am broken. I am frail. I'm trying and I'm falling. My knees are bloodied. And I'm sweaty, and it's rough. She doesn't play that that religious game of pasting everything over with whitewash and plastic a little smile on her face and acting like, praise the Lord, when everything is falling apart. Somebody said, well, brother, that's not a good faith confession. It's truth. (laughs) Things are rough. It's how it is. But we don't stay there. We don't stay down in the mouth. We're just honest. And she goes, I am dark, but I'm hanging on to this. He likes me. He loves me. That even though I'm prone to failure and even though that I'm weak and I blow it often, even though that my performance is horrible, he loves me. He loves me. See, beloved, unless we have I am dark but lovely, we haven't even gotten to point one yet. We haven't even started in our understanding of the love of God. That's point one. God loves the weak. And God loves you and your weakness. So many times we get rolling and running and gunning and doing our Christian duties, and all of a sudden we are morally clean but passionately dull. Come on. We're morally clean, but passionately dull. We have it all painted up looking good, and our hearts are dull and dark. And boredom is gripping us, and the reason why is this. The reset button must be pressed, and we've got to go back to this. I am dark, but God loves me. I'm hanging on to this truth that I am weak, and my performance is pitiful sometimes. But God loves me. Somebody goes, well, brother, you're just preaching all the sinners right into sloppy grace. No, I'm not. I'm saying this, that if you said yes to Jesus, there's a sincerity in your heart that God esteems. The yes in your heart, God esteems. And he says, you are beautiful regardless of your weakness. I am not telling the insincere who are in rebellion and hate God, God still says your sin is beautiful. I'm saying to the sincere of heart, though you're weak and though your performance is horrible, though you are prone to sin, the sincerity in your heart that keeps you coming back to God, God says you are beautiful. That is point one. I remember when that hit me. that, That was a truth because I was so programmed to performance. That was a truth that took literally, and still does, but it took literally years for me to be able to just say it and not sort of wince internally. You know what I'm saying? I'm dark but lovely. 
And rather than me going, oh, is it real? I go, oh, it's real. It's real. I'm weak, but he likes weak people. I fall, but he loves me. And I remember the, the one time the Lord, I remember him hitting, it, hitting me with it over and over and over. But I remember this one time I'd made a major mistake. It was just one of those human error things. It was like, man, you know, I just didn't think a thing through. And it caused, you know, three or four problems. And it was embarrassing. And it was in front of leadership. And I just was like, oh, no, God, how am I ever going to sort of make my way back? Look what I did. This was awful. I goofed. I mean, I blew it big time. How do I, how do I get back from something like this? And the Lord said to my heart, he goes, Hey, Billy, dark but lovely doesn't work when you think that you're lovely. It works when you realize you're dark. I went, oh, oh that's way harder. That's way harder than hearing in a message when I'm feeling good about my Christianity and going, yeah, I'm dark but lovely, yay. You're saying I've got to believe this when my weakness is on display? I've actually got to believe you love me when I'm looking foolish? He goes, yeah, because that's the truth. It's not about your performance or your feelings. It's not about what other people perceive about you. It's about the reality of the way that I feel about you. And I am never surprised. Did you ever, you know, we kind of think God is surprised by our failings. Do the math. He knows everything. He knows tomorrow just as well as he knows yesterday. I guarantee you, he's never shocked by you. We're shocked by ourselves, and that's like the height of arrogance because we can't believe that we've got a propensity to failure and sin. But he's not. He's never surprised. He goes, I knew you were going to do that. I still love you. You're still beautiful to me. I still delight in you. I desire you. Beloved, that is point one. When that thing hit my heart, I mean, it was a hard one to swallow because I'd been so programmed to performance. But when that thing hit my heart, the truth of this, that I don't have to be perfect for God to love me, everything began to change. He loves me in my weakness. So whether I do great or I do awful, he loves me. Whether I'm the star or just, you know, in the dirt, it doesn't matter. I've already won. Listen, you've already won. You've already won. There's no better thing than the love of God for you. You've already won. You know how you won? Jesus dying on the cross. That's how you won. You can't perform better than that. You've already won. Saying yes to Jesus on the cross settles it. You can't perform your way into God's delight. He delights in you anyway. He delights in you already. You can't make it better. It's already as good as it gets. You've won. Quit working. Quit trying to make him like you. That's one one of love. Though you're weak, he loves you. Though you're dark and prone to sin, he loves you. Second thing that just rocked my life. This one was equally as difficult to receive because I was so performance oriented. 
that God believes my love is real. See, I lived my whole life working, 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 trying to show God that I loved him. And what I realized was this. Before I lift a finger, just when I said yes and turned my heart towards him, God accepts my love as true. That was huge. And it was so shocking. I go, wait a minute. I don't have to prove What about those verses? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You're you're hanging those over me, trying to make me prove that I love you through keeping your commandments. What about those verses? And he goes, no, 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 you've you've misread the whole thing. He's just, he goes, I'm just trying to say that the way that you'll be able to keep my commandments is by falling in love. I went, oh, oh, wait a minute. This isn't about getting the list and doing the list and saying, see, I did the list. See, I love you. He goes, no, this is about falling in love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That changed everything. So my love is real. And the point was this. Even though it's a little love, it's real love. Even though it's immature, it's actual. No one would ever say that my children, my youngest who's six, is not a person just because he's small. And God would never say that your love is not real just because it's immature. Immature love is real love. It's actual love. And God takes pleasure in your love when it's small or when it's great. Beloved, that, I tell you, that unplugged something from me. It delivered me from a performance mentality. Trying to prove to God my love was real my whole life. And all of a sudden understanding this, that my littlest turn of my heart towards him, my littlest desire to try to please and love God, my smallest little movement, he says, it's real. It's real. I love it in Song of Solomon, the maiden, she she rejects his leadership, and in chapter 3, she undergoes a little bit of discipline. He pulls back to try to, to try to deepen the desire and longing for love in her heart. He pulls back just a little bit. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, you have ravished me. You have overcome me. Your love is fair. She hasn't even lifted a finger. She just said, I, I do want you. He goes, oh, your love is beautiful. She's not done anything to prove it yet. It's the experience that I had with my children, each one of them, when they were born. I've told these stories before, but we've got to press reset, I promise you. Each one of them, when they were born, they come out, and I'm there in the delivery room with my wife, and the children come out, and involuntarily, I begin to weep uncontrollably because of that explosive cascade of love that overcomes me. They haven't done anything yet. They've not lifted a finger yet. They don't know my name yet. And I am overwhelmed in love. Why does that happen to us, parents? Because it testifies of God's love. Before you can lift a finger, he loves you. And your littlest movement of love, he goes, it's real. I remember the first time my little guys tried to like do a smile like, like barely. I'm like, oh, he loves me. It's real. 
Somebody goes, that wasn't a smile, that was gas. I go, no, it's real. And that's the Lord to the thousandth power. He says your love is real. No matter how immature it is, no matter how prone to, to wander you are, your love is real. Hear it. Though you're weak, he says you're lovely. And though your love is immature, God receives it as real. Beloved, those two truths changed my life. It was like I got saved over and over, all over again. Well, I'm in my introduction. Sorry, I didn't get much through this. Let's hang out with this for a few weeks. What do you say? Yeah, let's go ahead and stand. Some of you find yourself toiling. Some of you find yourself, your passion is waning. Some of you, you find yourself performing. And you need to press reset, Matthew 22 too. You need to press the reset. We're just going to have a moment of prayer. I'm going to invite you forward. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. Help us press reset. This is our story, beloved. Oh, it's our story forever. And all your circumstances, they actually feed into the storyline. It's crazy. He uses everything to bring us into perfection and love. And we're going to talk about the story over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about the father's perspective, the son's perspective, our perspective. We tell the story. We've got to remind ourselves of the story. Come, Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven. It's like a certain king, a good king. It's arranging a wedding for his son.